Welcome, everyone, to the New York Public Library. I'm Jean Strauss and the director of the Coleman Center for Scholars and Writers that's upstairs here. And I'm delighted, we're delighted to be sponsoring tonight's conversation between John Jeremiah Sullivan and Wells Tower. Um, this is the final program in what has been a very full season of conversations from the Coleman Center. I want to thank the fabulous staff of the members at the Coleman, fabulous members of my staff. Um, who make these events not only happen, but work so well. Marie Dorigny, Katie Pyatt, and Kelly Cook. Coming up in the new year, we'll have Nathan Englander talking with Sarah Jones about Nathan's new collection of stories, what we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank. If any of you know Sarah Jones, she's kind of a performance artist, and we have no idea what character she'll be in when she interviews Nathan, but most likely a little old Jewish lady but she sort of changes characters while she's in an event, so that will be extremely entertaining. And Hari Kunzru and Teju Cole talking about Hari's new novel, Gods Before Men. Um, if you're not on our email list and would like to find out about our upcoming events, please leave your email address on a sheet you'll find by the door as you leave. Both John Sullivan and Wells Tower are former fellows of the Cullman Center, and I'm not alone in wishing we could keep them here forever in permanent offices. John's first book, Blood Horses, Notes of a Sports Writer's Son, published in 2004, is, like all of John's writings, many things at once. A tribute to his father, traces of memoir, and an astonishing exploration of everything an indefatigable, indefatigable reporter and brilliant writer might find and choose to tell the rest of us about horses. Since 2004, John's been living in North Carolina, writing feature pieces for GQ, the Paris Review. You can go ahead and sit right here. Um, GQ, Paris Review, New York Magazine, Harper's, and the New York Times Magazine. And he's been winning prizes including a Whiting Writers Award, a National Magazine Award, and the Pushcart Prize for one of the essays in his new book, Pulphead, which we're going to hear about, of course, tonight. I simply love this book, and I'm sure every, all of you who haven't read it will as well, and clearly the critics do too, since most of them have been doing something rather unprecedented, which is get out of the way and quote long passages of John's own writing as if to say, I can't possibly offer anything better than what this writer himself has to say. As most of you know, that's not a usual attitude for critics, and of course they're right. I should also add that they don't just quote John. Several of them, most recently James Wood and the current New Yorker, have had brilliant things of their own to say about this book and this writer. Wells Tower's brilliant first book, a collection of stories called Everything Ravaged, Everything Burned, was published in 2009. Wells is currently working on a novel that starts in the Great Depression and ends in the recent mortgage crisis. Like John, Wells lives in North Carolina, writes superb essays as well as fiction. Um, he publishes in Harper's, GQ, The New Yorker, McSweeney's, The Washington Post Magazine, and he too wins a lot of awards. Um, his include the Paris Review's Plimpton Prize, two Pushcart Prizes, um, the 2010 Young Lion Young Lions Award from the New York Public Library, and a place on the New Yorker's 20 under 40 list of top flight young fiction writers. Um, I forgot to say that John is currently working on a long nonfiction book, which I hope he'll find time to get back to once all the 
whirlwinds around this book die down. I'm sure he will. Um, for all the similarities, these two extraordinarily gifted writers have not met until today. And we are fortunate indeed to, priv <laughs> privileged, I would say, <laughs> to be able to listen in on their first conversation. You should just ignore all of us here and get it on. Um, <laughs> That's what I was saying. <laughs> their books will be for sale um, outside the auditorium after the program, and they've agreed to stay and sign copies. Please join me in welcoming John Sullivan and J Wells Tower. I would agree with Jean that this is a, a fantastic book. Um, though for me, it really, let me just say that it was a pleasure to read it would be wrong. Uh, I, I think that, that when you sent me the galleys, uh, I think that in the email I wrote back to you, I said, you know, thanks for sending this. Multiple times reading it, I felt the barf of envy rise. Which <laughs> <laughs> is absolutely true. It's like, uh, I think I used the, like, the word upsetting appears in my I mean, like, it, it was upsetting to me. It's just so good that, I mean, I found it kind of uh, debilitatingly impressive. Thank uh, you for saying that. I don't know why you would. You've, you've written as so well good. yourself. It's just so very good. But, um, but I, I did sort of wonder how you, after publishing a very brilliant memoir and, and uh, feat of reportage with Blood Horses, what it's like for you to now publish a, a book of <coughs> magazine pieces that, you know, for me when I do a magazine story, it, as we were saying a little bit earlier, um, you know, it always seems so thrilling when you get the assignment and then you sort of have this notion of this fantastic piece that you're going to write and then you go out and you meet some people and they become very real and important and mm -hmm. dear to you and then you sit down to write and you commit maybe things that sort of feel like betrayals as you transform them into language on a page and then make different sorts of compromises to get the thing into print. And usually by the time it appears in the magazine, you're sort of very glad that no one's going to talk to you about it three or four months down the line. So, I mean, so, so, <laughs> so what's it like to have this sort of, you know, this is your life experience from your last eight years of, of magazine work? On one hand, it's easier because you're, you know, you're, you're presenting a kind of miscellany. Um, and so there's something more casual feeling about it, maybe. But, um, but it's funny for me to look at the book now and see how self-conscious I was at the time I was writing the pieces of you know, already thinking of them as maybe being in a book. Not that I was imagining publication even necessarily, but the fact that I was even paying attention to what they had to do with one another must suggest that I was already thinking of them as a, as a kind of unified thing. What, what do you think they do have to do with one another? There are obsessions running through them and that they have in common. And, um, and in, in, in putting the book together and in, in figuring out what would be in there and what would be left out, I was trying to position them, you know, like, like mirrors or something to make them talk to each other. And, and there, so, you know, there ought to be things that happen on page 250 that, that zip you back to page 24 or whatever, you know, the way that, and, and, and I guess that 
that kind of thinking you'd normally associate with a with a unified book project. But I, but, but somehow I was doing it when I was writing the pieces, you know. Yeah, I mean the the, the pieces really do accumulate to this amazing portrait of a kind of pop cultural landscape and you know all the insights about music and politics, but also about your family. It seems that often you know, the soul of a story will somehow find its resonance in you know, your childhood or, or, or something with your family. Um, and I, I wondered how, you know, after doing Blood Horses, which was such an intimate investigation of, of your father and your family, uh, how that sort of writing differs for you from, you know, the, the, the more externally reported pieces where you're writing about strangers. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm usually grateful for the input. I'm grateful to be kind of shocked out of myself. That's one of the things that that um, being a traveling magazine correspondent can give you that you're that you're being shocked out of your out of your your melancholy and your narcissism on a regular basis, you know, and and being forced out of the house and forced to interact with people who are totally unfamiliar to you and to realize that they're just much more complicated than you would have allowed them in your in your imaginings, you know, so it, it makes me more optimistic. Um, but yeah, it's funny how much of the other kind of writing you're talking about—the memoiristic stuff—ends up in the in the journalism. And I think that's because I gravitate towards subjects that are tapping into those things for me, into the things that are already problematic for me, things that I'm chewing on. Yeah, I, I was always during the. 10 years covered by this book, I was always seeking out subjects that, that, that were going to gratify those things, you know, those urges or whatever. Though, though it's, it seems as though you found your way into the more personal dimensions of these pieces organically. I, mean, I read something in, her, in the interview, the, the story that you wrote about uh, the Christian Rock Festival, mm -hmm. that you didn't actually think that you were going to use that as a jumping off point to write about your own sort of experiment with, with faith. I mean, maybe you could talk about sort of where that piece came from and, and, and how that, that middle yeah. section... Uh, I mean, I, I'd be lying if I said I didn't know it was going to happen. <laughs> you know, that if I was going to spend a week with 100,000 born-again teens, that at some point I wasn't going to mention I'd been a born-again teen. <laughs> but, um, but, I, but, but, but what, I didn't, what, what I didn't expect is that I would end up writing my way through that kind of arguably somewhat gimmicky moment in the piece into some stuff that was surprising me as a writer as it was happening. You know, and, and, and a lot of the pieces went that way for me. Formal devices, formal tricks, things that you use as a writer just to, just to steal your courage for going into the abyss of trying to put the piece together. Those things would eventually be kind of left behind and you'd end up in that place you get when you're doing your real writing, when you're saying things you weren't expecting to say and just trying to be as clear as possible, you know. So for me, the, the, the memoir stuff ended up doing that. It went deeper than I, than I expected. I, I, I think if you'd, if you'd told me six months before that piece came out that I would have written that candidly about my Jesus phase, I think I would have been horrified, you know, <laughs> then it was happening. <laughs> well, so tell me a little bit, a, a bit about the Jesus phase. Um, <laughs> I'd like to know underground sort of born-again movement in Columbus, Ohio, meeting in like huge warehouses instead of traditional churches and very intense about scriptural study and whatnot. I mean, I, it, was, it was one of the reasons I've never been able to turn my back on it completely is that I'm so grateful to it as a writer for having made me memorize a lot of King James English, you know. Um, 
Well, and, and also, it's such a great uh, sort of arsenal of trump cards to have in your back pocket. Um, you know, there's, there's the great thing in the, in the Tea Party story. Um, remind me of what that is, where you... It's strewn throughout. outfox somebody on uh, some, some health care issue. But, but anyway. Um, oh, I said a guy came up to the microphone at one of these Republican rallies that they were... It, it, was, in, it was in Virginia. Um, a senator who was later unseated by a Tea Party candidate, and this they, they were having one of these town hall things, and it was really intense. And the guy came up to the podium and said, um, and said, uh, to, um, to each according to his needs, and from each according to his abilities. And then he and then he looked at the senator and said, that is the credo of Marxism. <laughs> and and the credo of Barack Obama, and then he and then he walked off as if he'd left bodies lying. <laughs> so I said it was my one moment of protest. I said that's from the New Testament, which it is. It's from Acts. Yeah, and, Acts two and four. Uh, and the, the woman next to me gave me this amazing look. This is it's you know? so great. Yeah, the believers had all things common. As many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distributed, and, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had his need. Mm, mm. It's like just Look, face. Yes. Like, no, Jesus, Jesus, was like, Jesus was like, I just want to be clear about this. Be a socialist. Just so you're not confused about that. And, and, and we're like, no, he didn't mean that. He's being coded. He's using code. <laughs> I mean, for the rest of us, you know, secular humanists who are really innocent of this deep understanding of the Bible, it's just it's sort of like I know that you're being wrong and bad and dumb up there, but I, somehow I can't really, you know, can't box you in this way. Um, but anyway, I, I, I sort of wanted, for my own purposes, to, to drag you back into some discussion of, of family stuff, really uh, for no other reason than it, it seems like... The pieces that people are, are singling out to praise here, um, of the ones that, that I've been seeing people raving about, I haven't seen people really going as nuts as they should over this essay, Feet and Smoke, mm. um, which is about your, your brother Worth, who, who fortunately is not dead, but maybe you can, you can introduce the piece. Yeah, he was, um, he's here tonight, so yeah. I'll tell it in a way that doesn't freak him out. <laughs> but he was at a band practice. On, he, he was in a band that um, had some success for a while, and they were touring, and um, they were practicing in a garage, and he, the, the, the amp had a bad ground, or however you say it, and, and he was shocked literally to death in the sense that he, was, he flatlined, and they brought him back multiple times in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, and he did. Part part of the piece talks about how they made an episode of Rescue 911 about it, the show that was hosted by William Shatner. Yeah. Reality TV is always impinging on my life. That's one of <laughs> that's one of the themes in the book. Uh, yeah, there were so many moments in this book that I was just like, no. Yeah, right, right. No, well, well let's well let's YouTube it. You know. Um, yeah, the fact that that your brother died and lived, and that Shatner narrated the experience. Shatner narrated the experience. And, 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 and when it came to the part after the commercial, when my brother was going to wake up from the coma, Shatner says, on the third day. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. 
Um, but, we, but you know, when he, when he woke up, he said some very amazing and poetic things in his, in his hallucination. Yeah, these are, these are so wonderful. And, and John, I'm just going to have you going to have you read this little suite of, of tremendous uh, little gems. Mm. Uh, and, th and then maybe also ahead to um, maybe you can find it. Uh. <laughs> yeah, these were the things because my father and I were both keeping a notebook. I mean, it, it, it any idiot would have realized that he was just saying some amazing stuff. In fact, some of the best things I feel like I lost, but um, squeezed my hand late on the night of the 23rd, whispered, that's the human experience. <laughs> when, while eating lunch on the 24th, suddenly became convinced that I was impersonating his brother, demanded to see my ID, asked me, why would you want to impersonate John? <laughs> When I protested, but worse, don't I look like John? He replied, you look exactly like him. No wonder you can get away with it. <laughs> On the day of the 25th, stood up from his lunch, despite my attempts to restrain him, spilling the contents of his tray everywhere, glanced at my hands tight around his shoulders and said, I am not repulsed by man-to-man -man love, <laughs> but I'm not into it. <laughs> Evening of 25th, gazed at own toes at end of bed, remarked, that would make a nice picture, feet in smoke. <laughs> Evening of the 27th, unexpectedly jumped up from his chair, a perplexed expression on his face and ran to the wall, rubbed palms along a small area of the wall like a blind man, turned, asked, where's the piñata? <laughs> Shuffled into hallway. Noticed a large nurse walking away from us down the hall, muttered, if she's got her piñata, I'm going to be pissed. <laughs> Think about the milkshake. Yeah. That's the last one, yeah. I can't find it. Um, yeah. If, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Then he seemed to forget all about it. According to my notes, the next words out of his mouth were, check this out, I've got the Andrews sisters in my milkshake. <laughs> But I remember, too, that he introduced um, my mom and dad to each other across his hospital bed. He said, Dad, he said, Mom, meet Dad. Dad, meet Dixie Jean. It's <laughs> marvelous. But so, so you, you were how old? You were 19 or 20? when? I think about 20, yeah, 20 <coughs> 21, something like that. Yeah, you, you had the, the notebook handy. Yeah, yeah, I was already, I, I already had the sickness by that point. So, I mean, what, what kind of writer did you, did you imagine you were going to wind up being at that point? James Joyce. Sure. <laughs> Not being like him, but actually being Down to the glasses. I mean, how has I mean, your... I mean, how has, how has your career either converged or, or, or diverged from those early ambitions? <laughs> it's diverged in achievement. <laughs> <laughs> But it stayed, it stayed strong in hopes of one day getting there, you know. Um, no, I mean, I still, <clears throat> people who, who, whose approach to language is almost religious, you know, st st you know, stylists like that are still my true north as a writer, even, you know, even when I work in modes that are a little sloppier 
or, or whatever. Right, yeah, that's, that's another thing that has to do with my, my peristaltic response in reading this book. Um, yeah, that on the, on the sentence by sentence level, like th this is when I was just rereading um, last night on the plane up here. Uh, there's a description of bats as you're, you're going to the caves and the, and the cave piece. Mm. Um, this is such a kind of amazing but sort of a little throwaway sentence. There were pips, a small brown kind of bat hanging on the wall, wrapped in themselves. Mm. Doesn't seem like much, but actually, I mean, there's just this sort of, for me, a kind of flare of, of poetic wonder at reading a sentence like that. That you kind of pause and think, wow, this is an animal that's like, made out of its own blanket. Hmm. <laughs> That's better than what I... <laughs> I need to write that shit down. <laughs> but I mean, I, I sort of... You know, single that one just because it's such a kind of casual brush, brush stroke mm. that is still full of a kind of poetic attention. Mm. And, and it actually sort of got... There's a self-consciousness in leaving those sentences, isn't there? When, you, when something like that happens and you know it's right... There's a temptation to want to make it sound more like a normal prosaic sentence would yeah. sound, and, and to leave it becomes the thing that you do as, as much as it is to write it. You know? there, there was a sentence like that a sort of straight out of the notebook one, or was that one that you kind of thought, I'm going to do something fancy here? It was just an attempt to see it visually. It was, it was cruder than that. It was like... I, you know, because you, know, you come back from these reporting trips, and you know how it is. Your notebook is full, but it's also kind of distant from the experience. There's a, the, the, there's a way in which you can almost get lost in the notebook at the expense of, of, of what happened. And so, um, so I, I usually will try as almost a kind of meditative exercise to, to reimagine what actually happened. And, that, and that, I just remember thinking that that's how they looked. They were just perfect like cocoons. They looked like little cocoons, you know. Let's, let's talk for a second about your process of sifting the, the notebooks. And I mean, you're also such a beautiful researcher. You do such fantastic things with, with bringing vast tracts of, of research material to life. Uh, you told an interviewer that, you're, you, that you sort of borrowed a page from John McPhee. I mean, we were sitting down with these enormous oh, yeah. quantities of material, and you're trying to, to yeah. sort of bring them to heel. Um, yeah, I read this amazing interview that McPhee gave to a magazine, to a creative writing magazine back in the early 80s. Um, it was a magazine with a very 80s name, Writing on the Edge. <laughs> um, but they did this, this good and really valuable interview with him in which he, in which he described in, in just the most detailed, you know, non-romanticizing way how he worked, what he did. And so you're listening to probably the, you know, the best person on earth at condensing massive amounts of information into narrative vessels tell you how, how he does what he does, and every writer ought to read it, you know, um, who does any kind of research-based stuff. But he, he t you know, and, and it was interesting because at the time he was giving the interview, he was at Princeton, and computing was kind of just, he was talking to the interview like, I've got a friend who's into computers, <laughs> you know. And um, so he was already using some kind of data arrangement system, but his real thing was you break every, you atomize everything, you break everything down into the tiniest bits, a sentence that you found and something you read that you want to use, a thought you had that you put into your notebook. Every one of those becomes an item, and then the items are, are, are arranged in a kind of, with their own logic inside this log, this giant document that is all of his research, and then he starts to arrange 
He starts to look for chronology. He starts to look for narrative logic where things are doubling up. And, 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 you, and you got the idea reading the interview of something kind of crystallizing out of a background. You know, it's very beautiful in a way. Um, so I, I really, I, I was already using a kind of ham-fisted version of that, and I, and I, and I tried to kind of appropriate what he had, what he had talked about. And, and, and I'm doing that now with the, with the longer book I'm writing. You know, we have a kind of database going. It keeps you sane. You know. So are you are you breaking everything down within one document under subheads, or are you actually you know sort of doing index cards? And well, I mean, it's, no, it's funny because since McPhee gave that interview, the technology has caught up, and now you have you know like EndNote, which is essentially designed to do just what he was doing, and and it's you you, you enter everything, and it's it becomes Googleable, you know. So the second you want to see, you know, what was it that I saw in that one book that I thought was worth quoting, it can take you to that block of text and. Um, it's, I think it's kind of a necessary, almost evolutionary thing because the access to that information has become so total. So the, the, the membrane is so porous now with, with all, the, all, the, all the big digitized databases and Google Books and everything that it, 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 we need new and more powerful software to stay, to stay sane as researchers in the face of it. You know? Otherwise, every book would just turn into a kind of Joe Gould secret thing because you can just know so much. Um, I wanted to ask you some about about structure as well. I mean, <clears throat> you know, people like McPhee, um, you know, get get a little like new agey when they they talk about how they they structure a piece. You know, that <clears throat> I think it was McPhee. Yeah, he was sort of saying that. Yeah, he'll sort of imagine a kind of a spiral or yeah. you know, a bow constriction. He drew one of them for one of the pieces. Yeah, like, and, and that's what the piece is going to be like. Uh, Ren Weschler, the great nonfiction writer, plays with blocks for days. To arrive mm. at, a, at a structure, uh, and and the way that these these pieces are arranged, they're they're really not. There's nothing sort of conventional magazine writey about them. Um, <clears throat> I guess one that particularly struck me was the the Tea Party story, which you know, begins at a at a Tea Party rally, but then sort of spirals into to the story of uh, the death of a of a guy in is it Kentucky, mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. Deepest um, Kentucky. Yeah, yeah and, and, it, and it really winds up being, you know, the, like, like the, the aboutness of the, the piece is hard to track. You know, there's mm -hmm. no obvious angle with, with either section. Um, but the two wind up being a kind of, you know, Didianly diagnosis of the symptoms of a national discourse in deep trouble. Mm. Um, but if you could talk about how you sort of came to that piece, what came first? how you structured it. It started as just a simple assignment to write about the Tea Party movement and to go to the marches and go to the meetings and, and try to find out what was going on, if there was really anything happening in a ground roots way or if it was just a kind of ideology that had been emailed in, um, which, is, which is more how I feel about it in retrospect. Um, but, uh, but while I was working on that story, this guy got killed in, in Kentucky. Um, a postal. He was. He was a, actually. He was a census worker, and um, and he, uh, w when he was found strung up in the cemetery, he had fed written across his body. And so, because the media was so ready for some kind of spark, I mean, it was a, a real. There, there was a powder keg. I mean, you remember, you know, the, the, the Tea Party seemed very scary at one point when there there was a lot of violence, and. Um, so, you know, so people were wondering, is this kind of the beginning of something really ugly? And so I ended up 
spending some time in the town where this had happened. It's in the Daniel Boone National Forest. It's a beautiful part of Kentucky, also a very isolated part of Kentucky and a really good part of Kentucky to do bad things if that's what you want to do. And uh, he had been strung up in a cemetery. And so, you know, so I just followed the story from there. So, it was, you know, in other words, it had separate parts from the beginning because he was kind of a part of the Tea Party thing and kind of not. Turned out not to be at all. Turned out he'd faked his own death. How does one string oneself up? That was the thing that kept people from believing it for a long time. But I, I, I finally saw the FBI recreation of what he'd done, and it was quite convincing, down to uh, idiosyncrasies of the way the word fed had been written on his chest. There were things you'd do if you'd been kind of doing this as opposed to writing on someone like that, you know. But so ordinarily, that would be kind of a disastrous moment. And oh, for a reporter? Yeah, oh, yeah. You would just think, Christ, it's a dead end, man. Can yeah, this was nothing. Like somebody murdered you. Yeah. Um, yet, you, you kind of manage an amazing feat there, where, as it turns out, really the motive for the suicide was something that, that kind of plugs very directly yeah, into the... Yeah, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't manage it at all. He gave it to me. I mean, it was... It was I almost couldn't believe it as I was hearing it, but he, you know, it was a health care thing. He had um, been struggling with cancer for many years. It had come back. He knew he was going to die soon, and he knew that if he, that if he committed suicide, he was, they wouldn't be able to collect on the insurance policy. So he um, faked his death just in order to get his son a measly kind of inheritance. It was, it was, it ended up being at the center of the story. It was everything that the health care fight was about. You know, not letting crap like that happen to decent human beings. You know, and um, yeah, I don't, I don't, that was just a way. That, that was one of those stories. I, I didn't feel in control of it. I was just on the back of it as it happened. You know. Yeah, it's amazing that that didn't feel contrived or shoehorned in any way. Even though it was a moment that, that really should call for the most desperate sort of fancy footwork. It is kind of what you would have invented. Yeah. You know, but it was in, yeah. but it was invented by the Kentucky State Police. Um, I want to go back just for a second to the, the smoke piece, just because there was a section in here that I found tremendously moving, um, where you're sort of talking about the, the uh, curious brain space that, that Worth found himself in uh, during that month of recovery. Um, I can't imagine anything more hopeful or hilarious than having a seat at the spectacle of my brother's brain while it reconstructed reality. Like a lot of people, I'd always assumed in a sort of cut-rate Hobbesian way that the center of the brain, if you could ever find it, would inevitably be a pretty dark place, that whatever is good or beautiful about being human is a result of our struggles against everything innate, against physical nature. My brother changed my mind about all that. Here was a consciousness reduced to its matter, to a ball of crackling synapses, words that he knew how to use but couldn't connect to the right things, strange new objects for which he had to invent names, unfamiliar people who approached and receded like energy fields. It was a good place to be. You might even say a poetic place. He had touched death, or death had touched him, but he seemed to find life no less interesting for having done so. Just beautifully moving. But at the same time, it, I mean, even though this is not really related at all, it it seemed to me um, to kind of resonate with a certain quality of the book, which is that, you know, you seem to be able to go into these totally familiar terrains like an alien where they, you know, things become utterly new and astonishing. Um, the Michael Jackson obituary, for instance. 
you know, the, I mean, Jackson is somebody who's already been so thoroughly digested by the culture that it seems like it would almost be impossible to wring any fresh nutrients out of him. Um, you know, or not to, uh, <laughs> you know, not to just sort of like... bad thing with Jackson, right? He's already so chemically depleted. <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, he did. So I was sort of wondering uh, kind of about this, the, the this kind of alchemy of your own fascination with, with these subjects. Um, you know, that to do a magazine story, I mean, often it's like you get, you get the assignment, you think, okay, well, maybe I can do this. And then as you get into the writing of it, you either have to get sincerely invested in what you're doing or you have to be able to, to credibly fake it. Um, on this question, you, you quoted uh, Guy Davenport, who gave you some advice about this. Uh, uh, the thing he said is to follow your interest. He said there ought to be a phrase, falling into interest, to go with falling in love. Describe for me, if you can, that, that, what that process of, of falling into interest is like and, and how, how you can do it on cue. I thought that was a really beautiful phrase of guise and, and, and beautiful in, in that it described something that really happens, the way things actually work when you come to subjects as opposed to the way you like to... You like to think it works, you know. Books lead you to more books. Your, your, your interests widen, they expand and start to take in new subjects, but you're not coming to them in a forced way or because they think, you think they confer some kind of cultural value, but because now your own puzzle has kind of, ex, you know, expanded far enough that you can add, add that thing. So I was looking, always looking for magazine stories that would be that, that would, that, that would let me kind of keep pursuing things that I was already somewhat fixational about and um and 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 i think that that ended up being most you know the, the majority of the things i included in the book when i look at it it's the stuff that tapped into things that i've always been writing about and always been wondering about um you know michael jackson is the perfect example i mean growing up in indiana he was you know um he was a big I mean, uh, many gym classes spent practicing the moonwalk you know we knew we could claim him and um, I wanted to write about him as soon as he died, and th th there didn't seem to be space, but then something opened up. And, um, you know, what you're saying about, about him being one of the most digested figures, that was the fun of it. That was, that was the challenge of it, you know, to try to, to, try to restore some kind of, I mean, I won't say humanity, because, you know, writing doesn't quite have that power, but just, just as a... As a biographical subject that was somewhat compelling on its own terms and that you didn't already feel like you knew everything about. And that happened just by reading stuff that was totally new to me and surprising to me. And I, and, and I was just kind of feeding that into the piece, you know. And, like, and, and one thing I found, the most, in some ways the most interesting thing I found was that that whole idea of his having been completely digested and worked over, that in itself was a myth. <clears throat> Because when you looked, for instance, at African-American magazines that were being, you know, written and published during the 80s and 90s, their coverage of them was totally different, and they were getting a lot more access and seeing a much more complicated version of him. So I ended up incorporating as much of that as I could, you know. It's, it's it, you know, it's, it's nice to have the task put before you like that. It's like, how are you going to get under this subject? How are you going to, you know... Defamiliarize it in some way that, that that people will actually think they have something new to 
to learn about him, maybe. <clears throat> yeah, on the, on the note of, of daunting tasks, um, can you talk for a second about the the assignment that, that wound up um, birthing the, the Violence of the Lambs piece? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> There's an amazing place at Oxford University um, called the Future of Humanity Institute. <laughs> and you know you've got to be serious to call yourself that. Um, they, um, they, they, they really do just sit around in an office and, and think about what horrible things are probably going to happen to <laughs> in, the next, in the next hundred years and try to come up with solutions and try to head things off. And they were, they were amazing, but um, I didn't quite, you know, the trip didn't go that well when I was over there. And, well, and, and the assignment was to, to write a piece about the future of humanity. The future of humanity. Yeah. That was the idea. What's going to happen? What should we really be worried about? This was Soft one ball. of the stops. Yeah. yeah, it's a big old... <laughs> Just a big old melon. Um, um, and, uh, you know, so I came back and I was kind of depressed about the assignment. I think I'd already spent the money and you know, I didn't really see the piece happening. And so I went into some kind of at least semi-psychotic state and wrote this, this imaginary piece about what humanity should really be worried about, an uprising of animals against against man, oh, against but, but mankind. Let's, 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 uh, let's talk about this guy you met, uh, Marcus Livengood, how, how, you, oh, yeah. how you came yeah. to him. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, Marcus was, um, well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing I should say. I, I say that it, was, that it was imaginary, but really, it, you know, they're, they're serious people saying very similar things, you know, and, um, and, and I didn't end up inventing any of the facts in the piece, really. Any of the in, in, any of the animal data or anything, and there is this guy Marcus Livengood, and um, you know I met him at a college, and he he's kind of the farthest out of these people, and he he was the one who'd made an attempt to collate all of these reports that are coming in, and you know. Yeah, and <clears throat> I mean just just to give you guys a sense of, of uh, what this apocalypse looks like, um, so this guy's tracking these different. Uh, Animal attacks. One of the one of the first clues was the Steve Irwin thing, the, the crocodile hunter guy who got poked in the heart by a, a stingray, yeah. and then and then shortly after that there was another one of these mm -hmm. unprecedented. Mm -hmm. And then a third after the piece was published. Yeah, there was a rash of these stingray attacks. They were jumping into people's boats and bang right in the heart. This <laughs> thing <laughs> in China, it's the pets that are changing. The AP reported about 90,000 people in Beijing have been attacked by dogs and cats in the first six months of this year, up almost 34% for the same period last year. Amazing. The government said, in America, where animals have perhaps a freer recourse to weapons, at least four people have been shot by their dogs in the past few years. Amazing. One incident involved a stun gun. <clears throat> One reportedly took place while the animal was being beaten. Its owner hoped to death. Um, from here, we have reports of a pack of 200 dogs descended out of the mountains in Albania, ran straight into the middle of the town of Mamuras, and just started going after people, old people, young people, dragging them to the ground and inflicting serious wounds. One witness spoke of a clearly identifiable leader. There... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean, it sort of goes on and on here. There is um, kind of a fantastic quote. Okay, well, well, let's 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 go. Not a single one of those things, by the way, is. I mean, it was yeah, very thoroughly fact-checked. You know. Um, and and then one of the, the strange things was that yeah, chimpanzees have have begun to take up 
Spears, which was part of why you why you went to Africa. Tell mm -hmm. me about the, the Africa trip and, and what motivated that. Yeah, there was a place um, where uh, two separate incidents had, incidents had happened within a couple of years, and one um, some some chimps had started using spears in a way they'd never been observed to do before, stabbing bush babies, um, and in another one. Um, actually, there were three. There was another one where there was a, a battle between some human beings and some and some apes over water trucks that had come into a particularly dry area, and they were. It was really straight out of Planet of the Apes. They were up on top of the truck, hurling stones at the people and everything. And then in another part of the same region, they had they had attacked a person and, and killed him with stones. It hit him in the head at the bottom of this kind of watering hole. And um, yeah, so that so this Marcus Live and Good character you know, is very interested in that part of the world and seeing right. that as a kind of ground zero for the whole thing. Right, which is why you guys went there. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, yeah, he, I mean, he gets into some pretty interesting territory. I mean, after that, you know, getting this picture of kind of armies of, of chimpanzees kind of getting their act together and, and revenging themselves on, on human beings. Um, and then this is a quote from Live and Good uh, that you'd asked him what he was he was most afraid of and, and He's very afraid of bears. Uh, and and uh, he said that the worst thing that could happen is uh, a, quote, uh, combined chimp and bear onslaught with a sort of, <laughs> a sort of master blaster power dynamic between chimps and bears. So he's citing, uh, of course, the, the, the gladiatorial uh, midget and oversized retarded violent person uh, team that Mel Gibson had to contend with in uh, Mad Max Beyond. While Florida. courting Tina Turner. Right, right. Amazing. I mean, that's just astonishing stuff. Um, yeah, and then there's a, this interesting note at the end that, that goes, uh, big parts of this piece I made up. Uh, I made up Mark Good. I made up the trip to Nairobi. But I didn't make up the two incidents in Kenya, the battles of monkeys and men and the murder. I did not fabricate a single one of the animal-related facts or stories, the incidents. There's even a real-life guy on the internet whom I could have used in place of the made-up Mark, but that got messy because he wanted money, and anyway, he seemed insane. <laughs> so how, how, did that, how did that go with the fact-checkers? It didn't go down. It went down, as they say, like a turd in a punch bowl. <laughs> um, but they did, you know, they did eventually let me, let me do it as long as I came completely clean by the end. That was the idea. By the end of the piece, there should be a restoration of total transparency with the reader. Don't leave any weirdness about what was made up and what wasn't, you know. So I, so I do kind of clarify that at the end. But it was also that, you know, I was using a made-up character as a, as a mouthpiece for something that did seem to be happening on a certain level and at the same time indulging my own paranoia. I mean, in some ways, I think it's a, it, it, it's a piece that was... Um, the whole thing felt metaphorical to me by the end, even though there was a lot of fairly dense factual stuff getting woven in. I just it just felt like a the whole idea of this of, of this of animals turning on humanity just resonated with what seemed to be happening at the time. Just you know, in global capitalism, you know, just yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's eating also, itself. You know, I don't know. It's something sort of the about apocalypse we all want. You know, like, like we love the idea that, that it would be right. Like dolphins aren't going to take any more shit in there. Right. Yeah. yeah. You'd be like, yes. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's it's the apocalypse that that, that we absolutely lushly deserve. But um, but well, tell me about the response to it. Um. 
Well, it was meant as a hoax, you know, in, 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 in the classic sense. And, so, and, and there, so there were a lot of people who believed it up until the end, which was gratifying in a way, except that they became furiously angry in the last paragraph when they were told that it wasn't real. And, and so there were a lot of letters from those people. And there was a mean thing on the – well, not mean, actually. It was kind of fun. But there was a thing about it in the Washington Post saying that it had been irresponsible and, and you know. Um, but, I mean, it's a really remember, curious yeah. kind of outrage, actually, because – you know, as you say, all of this insane stuff that's in the piece is actually true. Right. Um, that you've just kind of fabricated. It wouldn't the, have the been worth doing otherwise. It wouldn't have been worth doing if it were just a, a joke, you know, just, uh. me, just messing with, with the reader in some kind of shallow way. I mean, it was, it was the only way I could think to tell that story, you know. And it's, I mean, to me it also kind of points out the American magazine readers kind of generic appetite for really crazy stories that were willing to swallow anything just so long as it arrives kind of under the guise of fact. I mean, that's why, I mean, you open any even like fairly respectable magazine and you're going to see stories like, you know, can aspirin make you psychic? You know, uh, <laughs> will your child suddenly explode for no reason? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it really, I mean, it's, it, like, that's, that's... People are very easily and, scared. Politically, that's been a pretty important thing in the last ten years. How susceptible we are to that, and it's amazing. You just you, you know you just introduce a certain color into the into the bloodstream, you know, and and watch the you know watch the body politic respond, watch it convulse, you know, and it's yeah. It just seems strange to me that people were so mad that. Uh, <coughs> Yeah, I had one guy, on, uh, an interviewer on the radio, tell me that he wanted to punch me in the face. <laughs> but that's A, inappropriate, and B, you know. I mean, why, he, felt, he felt dumb after, like, taking know, seriously just, lines, like, then the Jaguars came to town and assassinated everybody? Right. <laughs> right, see, I thought there were, there were signals. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, it also made me wonder, I mean, it's such a compelling piece of fiction. Is, is that a form that you've tried on at all? No, not since, I mean, n not anything that I would show anybody in a long time. But, it, but I, I do some, as much as I want to deny it, I do sometimes feel myself moving toward it. Um, mainly because having done nonfiction for a number of years now, I've, I've butted my head up against the limits of it enough time to be a little bit frustrated. There are things you can't say, you know, when you're talking about real people who can be wounded, and, and in many cases, people you love, you know. So I, I, I'm more aware now than I was when I started out as a writer that fiction is like the one place where you really can go all the way. You can go all the way to the bottom of the pool just in terms of human nature, you know. Um, so in that in that sense, I feel drawn toward it, but um, I don't I don't know that I really have a knack for it. You know that that may just be kind of not 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 my thing. And and you've got another big project that you need to get out of the way before you could start to. to yeah, yeah. Talk about the I have a thing I was already working on before either of the two books that have come out. Which well, is maybe it's, uh, if you could just sort of talk about that just briefly, and then, and then I think it's time to take some questions. But yeah, oh, I'm, sure. I'm curious to, um, to hear what you're working on. <clears throat> I mean. <clears throat> In one sense, I feel fraudulent because I should have finished it by now, you know. So, um, but it's 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 an historical thing. It's set in the first half of the 18th century, 
and it has to do with a forgotten uh, utopian thinker, a German. He he, he was um, he, he came to South Carolina, actually what is now Tennessee in the 1730s, and he tried to set up a kind of enlightenment city among the Cherokee Indians and among the Native Americans in the South more generally. He was he was a you know a century ahead of his time in some ways intellectually and um, and he had enough success with it to scare the English who paid a lot of money to have him brought down. They paid mercenaries to capture him. His name was Preber. This is a, a, between 1735 and 1745. He was in the New World for a decade and um, and eventually they did succeed in having him arrested. They paid mercenaries to, to the Cherokee were protecting him. They had, they had pretty much embraced his philosophy. And um, He died in prison on an island off the coast of Georgia. And, and, and when, he, when, he, when he died, he had this book with him that he'd written that was a kind of enlightenment manifesto. And it's, it's, it's a kind of um, semi-famous lost book among American historians, you know. And um, my book is, in a way, about what happened to his book. So it's it's what I what I was working on at the at the Coleman Center, and I'm still working on it. <laughs> Keeping the faith. <laughs> Keeping the faith. Well, great. Uh, well, I guess we should we should taper off and uh, open the floor to, to questions for John. Oh, sure. We have some microphones, um, so so that, so that everybody can help. Sorry. Right. <laughs> Hi, here, the left. <laughs> what does it matter, actually? Yeah. Oh, hey. Hi. At the beginning of the book, you say that the stories have been, I think, it's a substantially altered compared to the magazines that were published. Can you say, can you compare both or which were more altered and why did you do that? Yeah, all, all of them got messed with to some extent. The, 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 there are only a few that, that got rewritten. To any, to any degree, but uh, um, it, it, yeah, it was just—it was just funny. It, it, it was interesting to me as a writer. It ended up being almost a kind of laboratory experiment to move them out of magazines and into the book and watch the way different sentences would change. Things that had sounded good, or at least I thought so, when they'd come out in the magazine version. You know, different formal pressures being applied would warp them, and they wouldn't sound right. You know, and you know, and also. When you're doing that, when you're writing magazine pieces topically like that, part of what you're doing is having fun talking back to the culture in the present, in a very present tense way. But um, but that you know, not a lot of that stuff holds up, um, or at least not all of it did. So some of the changes were about that. Also, it seemed like I did a lot of work to the beginnings and endings of things because I wanted them to work together as a book and wanted to emphasize the ways in which they were, you know, having a kind of conversation or something. So, um, yeah, it's it's pretty. I mean, if you if you just stuck all of the original magazine versions in there, I, I think it would read very differently. Maybe that's a kind of you know narcissism or something. But but that's that was the operative principle.
Um, it was like it was like putting out cards on a table and trying to get them in the right order. There was a lot of messing around, and and some you know some friends helped me when I you know I, when I explained what I was trying to make happen. You know, it it, it was funny. I just I I just wanted to. What I had in my head was the reader coming to the beginning of the book, and I wanted them to to have an open course through to the end of it, and for their and not to be getting in their way at any point if they wanted to read it from cover to cover. I knew a lot of people wouldn't want to read it that way, but in case they did, I thought I need to leave that open, and um, and so some of the changes had had to do with that, you know, with not not putting too many things together and, and having a clot form. You know. when you, uh when you're doing a heavily researched article, two questions. One, when do you know when you're reading and absorbing and talking to people and doing interviews, when do you know when to start writing, when it's time to start writing the, the piece, and what do the early stages look like for you, the really raw early writing? Um, I know it's time to start writing when I hear the anger creep into the editor's voice. <laughs> One editor who's here, who I shall not, whom I shall not name, said it, it, there was there was a morning when I called him to say that once again I hadn't finished the piece, and he said, "Oh, see now." <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard him say that. I was like, "Oh, I have to finish it now." Um, but no, I mean, more more seriously, I think it's when you know it's it's um. There's no switch that flips. It's more like a film that you're watching. You're watching, you know, you're watching like the narratives um, develop almost in the material. The research is starting to, because the correspondences start to happen. The, the connections between things start to form, and you and, and, and the story is kind of developing against that against that background, and you're starting to see what will really be important to the story and and, and, and what'll be what'll have to be left behind, or will just become a kind of um, mood, you know, and for me that's often excruciatingly slow and prolonged, but it do, you know, it does happen. On the, on the boundary between, between uh, non and fiction, the reviewer in the New Yorker would, I believe, quoted three of your opening sentences and sort of dared readers to determine whether they were from fiction or nonfiction, mm -hmm. and at least one of the pieces in the book, the Lamb's one, really is fiction. It's just loaded with a lot of facts. Mm -hmm. um, so why is it you feel that you're not ready to make the leap since you indicated a moment ago that that leap would expand your ability to uh, go deeper? I don't know. I don't know. And it may not be a question of willingness. It may be a question of just talent. You know, I mean, I may just be kind of a nonfiction writer by nature. Um, that the, you know, the, the, the Lamb's piece is anomalous in the book that way. The, you know, the others are don't don't play around with with facts at all. And I and I tend to be pretty old fashioned about that stuff, not by any virtue of my own, but because I've been writing for fact checkers my whole career. So I, I, I always knew I wasn't going to get away with much. But um, but. Uh, You know, it's also like that whole nonfiction-fiction distinction. When it becomes a question of style, I don't even recognize that. They wouldn't have recognized that. You know, somebody like De Quincey wouldn't have recognized that. It was somehow 
that his style was somehow constrained by the fact that he wasn't a novelist. You know, when he, uh, so, so I don't, I mean, yeah, I steal from novelists. I mean, to me, to, to me, that's my prerogative as a nonfiction writer and vice versa. You know, it's just, it's just if you're, it's just if you're, it's, you know, all, all our, our prose practitioners to me. On that subject, let, you know, let's ask Will, since he does both fiction and nonfiction, do you have to sort of change brains? How, how do you approach that? I do. I mean, for me, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the nonfiction I do often feels much more like a kind of cold carpentry. Um, I mean, I'm not anywhere near as elegant a nonfiction writer as, as John is, but uh, I mean, it's often, you know, you go out and report and you know, after whatever it is, two, three weeks, a month, six weeks reporting, you know, I have an inventory of scenes that I know will work, and then it's really a matter of kind of researching what the contextual argument is going to be. I mean, that, that for me, the, my passion for, for doing nonfiction work always lies kind of in the more sort of minor moments with, with characters and these sort of, you know, smaller micro-narratives in the piece. Uh, whereas... You know, so, so I can sort of string together a few things that I think will work and that I like. Uh, for years, I was kind of trying to write fiction in the same way, where I would sort of try to report on stuff that was going on in my brain and generate enormous reams of notes the way that you will for a nonfiction story, and then to try to cook those down into a piece of fiction. And it was impossible. It just didn't work. That um, I think fiction has to write into a very... Um, very deliberate and searching and kind of painful emotional space. There has to be a, a kind of unity of emotional intention as you approach the work and, you know, fumbling for it or trying to, to sort of bend incident, uh, you know, to, to the sort of tone or emotional ambition of the piece just doesn't work. Are you ever tempted to hold things back for your fiction that happen when you're reporting the nonfiction? Because specifically the thing you wrote about going to Iceland... There's that amazing detail where the, guy, the guys are getting in a bar fight and one, one of their heads hits the floor and you, can, you know how loud it is in the story and how hard it is because you feel it in your feet before you hear it in your head. And I was thinking, like, I wonder if he was tempted to use that in a short story. I do story. it all the time. You know, I'm, I'm just sort of shameless about it. You know, that you could actually go back and look at, you know, nonfiction stuff I've done and see little moments and phrases that I've just stolen. So you just do both? I just do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sim boldly. <laughs> um, talk about real world. You were describing like a perfectly like transparent, candid person that's just like made for TV now. That that's who they're casting in reality television now. It's just somebody who just walks on the radio. You know, the radio go on set. The moment yeah. They show up. For Their the life was already a reality yeah, exactly. show. What do they care? Uh, my question is: Are you starting to run into that person? when you're doing reporting for other stories? And uh, are th these people are just out in the world now, and they don't even have to be on reality TV. They're just, that's just the persona. Yeah. Uh, does that make your job harder or easier running these people when you're trying to report about something else? I don't know. I mean, I mostly stay away from them. But also, you know, I mean, you don't, I mean, if you're, if you're working, you know, if the, the more, the better the story you're working on, the fewer of those people you're going to run into. But that was in my head at the time that I wrote that real world thing, that you were already starting to feel a kind of reality TVification of reality, you know, that the feedback loop was complete somehow. 
and um, and and so and, and you know people I knew personally, like multiple people I knew personally, were getting swept up into reality shows, and it just felt like this thing that was that was just swallowing, you know. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know about um, about the the percentage of those people in the population. <laughs> that would have to be would need to be studied. Uh, I wanted to ask in in reading the collection about this kind of. Uh... You have this unbelievable, I'll call it like fortuity per page. Like there's so much good, as a, from a reporting side, it seems like um, all of this, all of these great turns of fate happen to you as, uh, that like connect with your own life, these stories. And I know it's part selection and probably as you were saying, like following interest. But do you recognize that in your own when you when you looked back at these uh, this collection, were you like, oh man, that sure happens a lot? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's true. I mean, like the moment in the in the uh, Christian rock piece where a man just drops dead at your feet. <laughs> it seems like there's so many places in the book where some astonishing thing will happen to you. But yeah. So do you know how lucky you are? Uh, <laughs> not until right now, but it's beautiful. I, I, yeah, a lot of it came from cherry picking the pieces where something like that did happen. I mean, there are, there are 14 or 15 pieces in the book and probably, you know, 50 things I could have chosen from. But um, it's also just, you know, I mean... It's habit of mind, you know. After a while, things like that lead to other things like that because you're just putting yourself in the position so often. Um, you're you're ex just exposing yourself to a lot of a lot of social reality, and um, and so those things start to those things start to pile up. You know, the more the, the, the more you travel, the weirder the places you go, the more intense the situations that you're enter, in, entering into. You know, nowadays. When I'm, when I'm working on a story, I'm usually following around somebody who's really intense about whatever we're talking about and doing, you know, and so that, that creates sparks. And it's something like, like a man dropping dead at your feet. I can't yet engineer a scenario <laughs> like that, but, um, but, but, but I think that accounts for, you know, for some of that feeling in the book. It's just the nature of the job in some ways. Hi. I want to ask a piece about your Mr. Lytle piece. And what I'm curious about is, did you know before moving in with Mr. Lytle that this would probably be an excellent piece that you were going to write? Or at some point when living with him, did it dawn on you that, that this was something that you could really write about? I mean... I was 20 when I moved into him. I didn't even know that a piece existed. I didn't, you know, I didn't know what that was. But, but I, I, I must have known on some kind of animal level that it was going to be a really important thing for me as a writer. And um, no, you know what's funny? You know what the, you know, you know what I really think is the answer to that? He knew I was going to write about it. <laughs> you know, but I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't know yet that that was a thing to be done. But. Um, he knew, and now so much of what happened during that year makes more sense to me because of that. He was, he was, he was dying, and he was transmitting himself into the future in some way, you know, and and, and wanted it to be a complete picture, wanted all of it to be in there, you know. 
so he was less discreet with me than he had been with some people in the past. Uh, Tennessee Williams, in his uh, preface to A Streetcar Named Desire, talked about fame as being a bitch goddess and devouring its adherents. How does, how does a writer like yourself prevent your fame or, you know, people, you becoming more important than your story? How do you handle, how do you deal with that? Well, I mean, luckily it's a very low level of fame that I'm... <laughs> 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 you know, um, I mean, what is really problematic about fame, I would imagine, is, is, is when it becomes an intrusion into your life, and I'm not, I'm not experiencing anything like that. <laughs> most, most of what I'm experiencing is something like tonight that's really nice and wonderful. You feel like you're in a room with like-minded people, and they're, you know, they're, they actually care about your work. I mean, there's not, there's not much not to like. I do think you know, that, that the, the Internet has made it harder to be a writer when you experience any kind of notoriety or you know, you're just vulnerable if you if you you know if you go there if you engage with it you become vulnerable to so much scrutiny and and for me that's very destabilizing and also I feel as it's happening unhealthful you know for me for, for me as a writer that I'm just becoming I feel myself becoming too aware of what other people are thinking about the work and, and interpretations maybe that they're Putting on it, and I know that I do my best stuff when I'm inside a when I'm inside a bubble, when I'm when I'm at, when I'm actually deaf to that, to those other voices, and I'm, and I'm talking from a place that's a little more um, helpless feeling. And um, I, 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 I don't know. I'm not I'm not being very articulate about it, but it's it, it is a hard time for that, isn't? It? I mean, you know better than I. It's just really. I mean, you you know you become. Yeah, I mean, you just have to kind of tune it out, don't you? I mean. You can't, you know, Google yourself or anything, right? You can't. I mean, <laughs> you do it. You do it. Sometimes in the middle of the night, <laughs> I'll self-Google. I, mean, I, was, I was talking to. <laughs> it's painful often. This writer recently who was saying that he couldn't even bear to buy books on Amazon that had any kind of kinship with his own because he didn't want his book to come up as a recommended book and then he would see how many stars there were. Um, which That's is true, baroque. though. I mean, but I mean, with with that sort of thing, um, I mean, you do have to kind of inoculate yourself against. I mean, particularly the Amazon thing, where anybody can sort of just anonymously voice yeah. ridiculous opinions about you. Um, They're at the most prominent, most important point of interface between the reader and the reading public. Right there, you've got to have somebody saying, "This is a piece of." You know, it's like imagine if you went to a car dealership, and every time the person led you up to a car, there on the door it said, "I hated this car. I hated driving it. It was a waste of my money." It's like at least keep that moment pure. Later on, you can have the comments, but the point of intersection ought to be. And know. it's also sort of like you know, are, are you voicing these opinions? I mean, recently, an example I, I cite a lot is a friend of mine recently wrote a book that I think is a really perfect book, and. And I was buying it on Amazon, and I saw that somebody had given it like a half a star. Hmm. And it was just like, this is depressing. This sucked. It is annoying. 
And, uh, and I thought, okay, well, you know, if you didn't like this book, then, then what do you like? And I looked at this person's profile, and, and she'd given a number of other things, a half a star. She'd given, she'd given two things, five stars. One was uh, a weight loss manual, and the other was a, a pair of house shoes. And I just thought, you know, like if your idea of a good book is a pair of house shoes, you should have your license revoked. This is not fair. You don't get to, to talk about books. Um, but anyway. Oh, it was uh, Sam Lipside's The Ask. Lipside. It's brilliant. And probably one of the funniest people alive right now. Shall we? Thank you all. Yeah, that's great.